You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. What a beautiful day. Great opportunity to dedicate children to the Lord. I love getting to do that. Uh, Well, this week, uh, we are continuing. Oh, thanks, Mike. We are continuing uh, a series we started uh, last week. I wasn't here. Pastor Allen, uh, if you missed it, man, preached an incredible message. You can go back on YouTube or our Facebook page, but YouTube's probably better, and you can watch uh, the message in its entirety. It's really just a great, great opportunity to hear from God's Word. Now, uh, this is hard to believe and uh, hard to get my mind around, but 20, almost 22 years ago, wow, um, almost 22 years ago, I went to Bible college as a freshman, fall of 2000. And uh, I know I don't look old enough to have gone to college 22 years ago. Um, I was a prodigy. I was like three. And um, it was just a freak thing. Not, not really. But uh, in the fall of 2000, I left uh, my home here in western Pennsylvania, moved to Springfield, Missouri, to attend Central Bible College, which uh, at that time was one of the top ministry training schools in the Assemblies of God, which were part of the Assemblies of God. Uh, one of the, the fun names, I guess nicknames, that Central Bible College has, uh, had garnered over the years was Central Bridal College. Uh, it was not uncommon for freshmen to get engaged. There was this joke kind of that went around that said, uh, you get a ring by spring and your money, or your money back. Um, <laughs> It was a funny joke, funny joke. Um, uh, the, 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 the struggle for me, I was there from 2000 to 2005, so five years. I graduated in 2005 with a, two associate's degrees and a bachelor's degree, uh, but no spouse. And uh, throughout my time there, every school year, I would have to get a new group of friends because all my friends would start dating and get married. And I'd like move. So my last year, my fifth year, most of the time I hung out with freshmen because they hadn't gotten married yet and weren't dating. And uh, it was a different, different, different deal. Uh, and it wasn't that I didn't want to get married. I deeply wanted to get married. Um, it wasn't that uh, uh, I, I, I couldn't. I wanted to get married. Graduating and going into ministry as a single person was not my ideal dream. I had always envisioned being that typical pastor with a pastor's wife after I graduated from Bible college. But in spite of my hopes of getting married, there I was, single pastor. After graduating, I came here to Calvary as a youth pastor, uh, and things got very, very lonely. I was the youth pastor at that time, what was mostly an older congregation. I lived up in the parsonage. If you don't know this, we have a parsonage, a house kind of up on the hill here. I lived up there all by myself. I was one of the only single youth pastors in the entire area. I was constantly reminded that I had fallen short of this dream of being married in ministry. It wasn't until seven years after I graduated from Bible college that I would have the privilege of meeting and marrying my beautiful, wonderful wife, Heidi, who was just up here a minute ago. As I look back on um, that, that time in my life where it often felt like I was never going to get married, something occurred to me. The dream I had for my life and the dream God had for my life were not necessarily the same dream. And while my dream made sense from my young 20-something perspective, God had such a better dream in store 
which was meeting and marrying Heidi when I was almost 30. If you had asked me at 18 if uh, the path of singleness that God had for me was right, I would have said absolutely not, no way. But now looking back, God's dream and his path may have been difficult at times, but it was way better than I could have ever imagined. Now today, 22 years after going to Bible college as a freshman, I have an incredible wife and four kids. I couldn't imagine things being better. In fact, for every dream that you have, did you know, and I'm sure we have a lot of dreams, did you know that God has dreams too? You might think like God doesn't dream. He, he just knows, right? No, God has dreams too. And when I say a dream, I, I love this de- definition I came across of, of what a dream is. It's a, a cherished aspiration, ambition, or ideal. I love that. A cherished aspiration, ambition, or ideal. You, you see, our dreams aren't just abstract hopes or wishes. They are cherished aspirations, ambitions, or ideals. The things you dream about are things that are cherished, meaning you care about them. There's emotion involved. And God also has cherished aspirations, ambitions, and ideals. And and not just about anything broadly or abstractly, but he has these for you and for me. He has dreams for us. In fact, in, in, in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible we call the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah, Chapter 29, verse 11. God said through the prophet Jeremiah this statement. This is the New International Version. He said this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope. Can you say hope? And a future. Can you say future? That God has a future and a hope. Like a good future intended for you. In other words... God has a cherished aspiration for each and every one of us. Now, does that dream become realized for everyone? Unfortunately, it doesn't. And and, and we see in the following verses, verses 12 and 13, which we don't oftentimes look at, uh, why some people never experience that dream. Here's what it says in verse 12. It says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all. Can you say all? With all your heart. Does it say some of your heart? No. If you go back to the original Hebrew, the word all literally means all. Not like 95% or 50% or, you know, 50% plus one like a majority. No. All of your heart. You see, it's wonderful that God has a dream, but dreams aren't just wishes until proper action is applied. The Apostle Paul said that in, in, in Ephesians 3 said that God's dreams are beyond what we could ask or imagine. Think about that. I have kids. They like to ask for things all the time. They see commercials. They have to have it. They see something in the store. I purposefully will not walk them past the toy section at Target or Walmart just so I don't have to hear about the things that they have to have. We love to ask for things, right? Right? Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that God's dreams for us are even beyond what we could ask for or even imagine. That's remarkable. But to see those dreams realized, it requires the surrender of every part of our being. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 12, 12, verse 30. He said this, love the Lord your God with all, can you say all? 
There's that word again. All your heart and all your soul with all your mind and all your strength. Jesus was saying this. Do you think he was trying to get some point across here? Was he like, hey, if you could just like have some good wishes and send them my way, like send me some good vibes, that will probably work. No, he's saying all of us, every part of our being. Now, let me explain this another way. Maybe you have like a dream to be an Olympic athlete. Mark, I know you have a dream to be an Olympic athlete, and you're going to see that happen. Uh, maybe we have a dream to be an Olympic athlete, okay? To, 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 to be an Olympic athlete, that's an awesome dream. That's awesome. Like, I, 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 I commend you for, for wanting to do that. Say you want to be an Olympic athlete, but, but that dream is never going to be realized unless you're willing to go all in. Meaning, you have to put in a specific work, effort, and energy that's required to excel as an Olympic athlete. Just hoping and dreaming of being an Olympic athlete isn't going to get you there, right? Now, now, as we're continuing this series we're calling We Don't Talk About, today, we're discussing a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. Here's the deal. God's hope, God's hope for your sexuality and your marriage, should you have the opportunity to to experience marriage, both require surrender on your part. To see the hopes God has for you that we read about in Jeremiah 29, 11, demands a Mark 12, 30 pursuit. That you pursue God with all of your being. That you surrender everything to him. Your mind and your heart and your strength and even your sexuality. We live in a time where the ultimate human pursuit and end goal is to be true to yourself. We say things like, you do you. But God, as he often does, has a very different perspective. And this perspective, perspective isn't grounded in hate or anger or, or, or legalism. It's grounded in the cherished hope and dream for your life. That's what he has. In, in the book of Hebrews, as Jesus is going to the cross, the author of Hebrews writes that, for the joy set before him, he endured the pain of the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He didn't deserve it. He didn't ask for it. He didn't have consequences that he should be crucified for. Why did he do it? The, the author of Hebrews says, for the joy, that cherished aspiration, that dream of your life. The verses I read a moment ago from Jeremiah 29 are so incredibly encouraging. But there's a backstory that's so rich that's important to dive into if you want to fully understand the depth of what God is trying to say in these verses. And, and, and really, they, they reveal some principles that are revealed through God's view of sexuality and, and marriage. Here, here's kind of the backstory. Around 597 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, say that 10 times, but it's even harder to spell, trust me, King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem, where God's people, the Israelites, were living in. And he would eventually relocate or exile some 20,000 people from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon was a vastly different place than Jerusalem where they had lived. It wasn't a godly place, but instead was a very secular, pagan city. These Israelites would be removed from all that was familiar, all that had seemed right and proper, and, and he sent them to a place where nothing was comfortable. Nothing was familiar. They sent them to a place where uh, nothing was the way they had become accustomed to. The words I read earlier are so encouraging to us. I love reading Jeremiah 29, 11. When I'm walking through something that's really difficult, where it feels like the world's caving in, 
like nothing's going right. I love reading. God, you have plans to prosper me, not to harm me, to give me a hope and a future. I encourage you to hold on to promises like that. They're encouraging to us. But for Israelites who were living through this time, these words seem like a blatant contradiction to what they were experiencing and really feeling in the moment. It almost seemed detached from reality. On top of that, there were individuals who were claiming to speak on behalf of God as quote-unquote prophets who were contradicting God's actual words from Jeremiah and were just affirming what the people were feeling. God speaks about these quote-unquote prophets or diviners, he calls them, in verse 8 of Jeremiah 29. Here's what he says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, the reason God cautioned the people in these verses is because these quote-unquote prophets or diviners were not speaking the truth of God's word to the people. Instead, they were sharing things that lined up with what the people were feeling and ultimately wanted to happen, which is that they would return from Babylon back to Jerusalem very quickly. And while these words made the people feel better in the moment, they caused them to put hope in something that wasn't true. You see, the people wouldn't actually return to Jerusalem quickly. They wouldn't return for over 70 years. They would spend more than an entire generation living in Babylonian exile. And if their hope was in the wrong thing, they were going to miss what God was wanting to develop in them during this season of exile that would prepare them ultimately for his dream that he had for them. When God's words don't line up with our dreams, our desires, or our feelings, it puts us in a place where we have some pretty difficult decisions, very uncomfortable decisions. For example, there are times where we might feel like we deserve to repay someone for the wrong they've done to us. Then we read a verse like this in 1 Peter chapter 3, where it says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you can inherit a blessing. You're like, oh, I don't want to hear that. Or, or we might feel like we are justified in holding a grudge or being bitter towards someone that, that has, has hurt us. And we read verses like this in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in Christ God forgave you. Now, I hate reading verses like these because in my human nature, it feels right to want to bring revenge on someone that has wronged me. It, 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 it feels to me like being bitter towards someone that took advantage of me is the proper thing to do. But this is the unique, often uncomfortable role God's word and his words play in our lives. They more often than not will speak in drastic contradiction to our feelings, to the norms of society, and even to what we deeply, deeply want to be true. The Israelites in the mid-500s BC so deeply wanted to go home. They just wanted to go home. And it was an understandable desire for them to have. They, they had been ruthlessly removed from their homeland without any care or concern for their own well-being, then dropped into a foreign place that they had come to absolutely hate. With every fiber of their being, every emotion, every, every longing 
They just wanted something familiar again. But then God comes onto the scene. He says, I have a dream for you. It's not a dream that you can see right now, but it's a dream that's good and it will require you to just trust me. It's a dream that will be realized when you take the path I've set out for you. You can't take your own path, the path that might seem right or feel right because in the end, feelings can lie to you. It's kind of like in the movie, The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, the scarecrow, the tin man, the cowardly lion, and Toto, they wouldn't find their way out of Oz unless they were, they, they were willing to take the right path, the yellow brick road that led them to the Emerald City. And, and here's a simple thought for you today. That the fullness of God's dream will not be realized unless we follow the truth of God's path. We can't have our cake and eat it too. If you want to experience the dream that is beyond what we could ask or imagine, as Paul writes, you have to be willing to take the path that's grounded in the truth of God's word. And while this was a difficult truth that many of the Israelites would take over 70 years to learn, it's a life lesson I think we can get a lot out of here in 2022. You know, one of the areas where God's path for our lives has become increasingly difficult is on this topic of marriage and living out God's view of our sexuality. See, God created your sexuality and has made us all, as human beings, sexual beings. Our sexuality is an integral part of our humanity, of being human beings. But it's so easy to misunderstand God's desire and intent for sexuality. Unfortunately, oftentimes, we have believed society's messaging that our sexuality is about fulfilling our natural desires, urges, or feelings. This has given way to confusion throughout the church and Christian world. Individuals believing that pornography is an acceptable, acceptable expression of our sexuality or, or, or that it's okay to flirt with an affair with your coworker because you kind of deserve it or, or that, that attraction to members of the same sex must be God's plan. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're watching online. You have a same-sex attraction or, or maybe you, you battle with an addiction to pornography, or, or you're walking a, a very fine line toward an affair with someone in your life right now. And if that's you, I'm not here to ostracize you or make you feel like less than what God intended, which is that you are a cherished creation of his. What I am saying is that God has a dream for your life. He has a hope for your future, a cherished aspiration for your life and future. And, and to experience the reality of what God has for your life, it will demand that you take his path, not your path. His path isn't based on our feelings or the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but it's based on the truth of his view of your future. You see, the dream God has for your life, I promise you, is beyond what you could ever imagine. But it requires you to submit everything to him, even your sexuality. Unfortunately, in the church, we have often walked through the topic of biblical sexuality and even marriage with misapplied passion, especially toward those with same-sex attraction. We have spoken to people and told them what they should or should not do. We have allowed our words to condemn based on what these cherished creations of God are doing or not doing rather than speaking to them about who they are in God's eyes, what their true identity ultimately is grounded in. 
We have become so focused on the doing that we have forgotten the being. You see, our identity is based on our being, not on our doing. What we do ultimately flows out of who we are. And to experience God's dream for your life, it's important to first recognize how God identifies you and I as his creation. He doesn't identify us based on what we do, who we're attracted to, or what the color of our skin is. He identifies us as his sons and his daughters because we are his creation. Those who have same-sex attraction don't need the church telling them what they are doing is wrong. They need the church speaking words of life over them about who they are as a child of God. This is because God never intended us to carry any other label other than child of God. We should never allow ourselves to be labeled by our temptations, our mistakes, or our past. Everything else we do in the pursuit of God's purposes should flow out of an identity grounded in the truth of being a child of God. This doesn't mean we condone or even agree with how many of our friends might be expressing their sexuality. But we should still love them because they are cherished creations of God. And if you struggle at reconciling your faith and your sexuality, I would ask you, beg you, give the church a chance to be heard. Not, not as we shout hate from the mountaintops, but as we declare God's promises for your life. Don't discount what God wants to do in your life. You see, God isn't looking to condemn us, but ultimately to rescue us from our own issues, baggage, mistakes, and chaos. We're all pretty familiar, maybe, uh, with the, the passage in John chapter 3.16. It's a pretty famous verse in the Bible. But John 3.17 is equally as important. It says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in saving, God is really longing to get us on a path toward his dream and away from our own destruction. To choose God's dream and ultimately his path for our lives, it demands we be willing to recognize God's priority is ultimately in developing us, not just leaving us to our own desires. We see this in what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. A letter that he wrote to this church that's now known as the book of Ephesians. And he writes about God's dream for marriage. And it illustrates God's purpose ultimately for marriage and really his purpose for every area of our lives. Paul writes that marriage isn't simply about feeling loved or acting upon your deepest feelings or longings. It's not even about a contractual agreement. It's about so much more than that. Here's what Paul writes. It's in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. It says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Man, that verse is taken out of context more than I think any verse in the Bible. We love that verse as husbands. Love that verse. Wife, you need to submit to me. It says it in the Bible. Look at it right there. If you've said that to your wife, I just encourage you, hang on for a second because we, we got more to read and things get a little different as you read, Okay. It's amazing what you can find when you keep reading. Uh, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of his church, his body, uh, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Here we go, verse 25. Husbands, 
Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. So wives, you submit to your husbands. Husbands, Jesus endured significant pain and gave his life for the church. This isn't a one-sided thing, like women should just do whatever men say. No, no, this is, this is a, a picture, ultimately, of mutual biblical submission that takes place in this biblical view of marriage between a man and a woman. Is it easy? No. But it's what God intends. And the word submission might have different connotations for you, but in the Bible, the idea of submission is really working to make the other person better. These verses are so important. And and just to kind of call the elephant out in the room here, what I just said and what I read isn't a political statement. It's a biblical one. Politics have unfortunately made a lot of these things political issues. We should all look at these issues not through a lens where our political ideology informs our faith, but it should actually be the other way around. Our faith should inform our politics. That's really hard to do, and sometimes it's really hard to realize we're doing. You see, God's purpose for marriage and sexuality is ultimately about developing you in the context of who he says you are. And regardless of where you fall, as the worship team comes today, regardless of where you fall on the marital or sexual spectrum, God's hope for you is to develop your identity to help you take a step back from all the things that can so often define you and to get to the core of what really informs who you are, what your identity is in. For the Israelites exiled in Babylon, they struggled because their identity had become defined by where they were rather than whose they were. They were Israelites. They weren't in Israel. They were in Babylon. And they really struggled with that. But God was trying to show them that their identity wasn't based on their surroundings their circumstances, or even their desires. Their identity was based on who created them, that they were God's children, first and foremost. When you look at God's view of marriage and sexuality, we see this really important principle unpacked. The dichotomy of God's idea for marriage and for sexuality is that it's not about you. It sounds crazy. I do a lot of weddings. And I know, man, there are a lot of brides that have, let, have spent their entire life dreaming of this moment. I've seen some bridezillas. This is, this is my day. And I'm not gonna tell them otherwise. Do whatever you want. Just let's get through this and like get to the other side. But here's the truth. Marriage isn't about you. I know that's hard. And, and, and really God's desire for any area of your life regardless of what it is, is that it's simply not about you. That's because the identity God has for your life isn't dependent on you. It's dependent on him. God's dream is about developing in you what is necessary to experience the dream he has for you. In other words, he wants to develop in you that puts you in a place where his dream can become a reality. He sees a future for your life, regardless of your age, season, or stage of life. This is beyond what you could ever imagine. But you can't just step into that dream. 
you're not ready for it. You have to take his path to get ready for it. God prioritizes the journey over the destination. Whether you're talking about your marriage, your sexuality, whatever it might be, it demands that you're willing to say, God, I'm gonna put my desires, feelings, and hopes aside. I am gonna pick up yours. And I'm gonna follow you and trust that you know the way and what your plan and purpose is for my life. God's desire for your life His hope isn't that you'd become more true to yourself, but ultimately more true to him. His desire for your life is to shape you, mold you, and create you into a more clear picture of Jesus, a picture where your identity isn't found in anything outside of who God says that you are. And and I know that this kind of a topic is a heavy topic, and there's a lot here that we could never fully exhaustively cover. But here's my, my question and ask for you today. If you are struggling with your sexuality, maybe some of the issues or uh, situations that we talked about today, I wanna talk to you. One of our pastors wanna talk to you. See, I believe that change happens most effectively through conversations, not just through wishing and hoping that things change, but being willing to talk through things and sometimes wrestle through things, discuss things, regardless of what you might be facing. If you find yourself struggling with your sexuality, you have a lot of questions. Maybe you've made some mistakes that you're not quite sure how you can come back from. My email address here is on the screen. I want you to email me today. Not, don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's the 4th of July. You'll forget everything. All you're focused on is what you can blow up. I understand. Do it today. I want you to email me today. Let's set up a time to talk, whether it's with me or one of our other pastors. Let's talk about how we can walk through that. Not not that I have all the answers. I don't. But I can be a listening ear. I can be someone that can help process and our pastors can do the same. This is something that, as a church, we want to make sure that we are a place of healing. We aren't a gathering place for the saints. Maybe that, you know, disappoints you. We're a hospital for those who are trying to work through life. And we want to help you work through life. You might even be watching online. You're like, ah, I don't know. Email me. We'll we'll set up a Zoom call. I don't care. Like, let's, let's work through life together. Because on this topic of marriage and sexuality, the capital C Church in America, by and large, has been really not clear and hasn't done a lot of good. We've found ourselves on opposite ends of spectrums of hate or full acceptance. We're not gonna find ourselves in either one of the, Calvary Church isn't gonna find themselves in either one of those end spectrums. We find ourselves right in the place where Jesus was, which was right in the middle. We're here to love people. We believe God has a plan and a dream for their lives. And to experience the dream, you have to be willing to take his path. And in, in a minute here, we're gonna sing a song. As we sing the song, I want you just to reflect in your own life. Whether you struggle with issues of sexuality or your marriage or, or not, here's what I want you to do as we sing the song. I want you to reflect on what is your identity grounded in? What informs 
who you are. Is it your job? Is it your role in your family as a parent? Is it your money, your house, your car? What is it that informs your identity? Be honest. This isn't a time for, you know, good Christian answers. This is between you and God. No one else is going to see this. I want you to reflect on what is your identity grounded in? And then we're going to wrap up after we sing this song. Lord, I thank you for these moments. As we sing this song, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would shine the spotlight on our hearts and our minds. God, illuminate the areas that have yet to experience your redemption, have yet to experience, Lord, the definition of who we truly are in your eyes. God, reveal it. Bring it to the surface, I pray, this morning. God, that we can address it, work through it, and discover why that's there and how we can make it better. Let's sing this song together as we reflect this morning. This is Pastor Nick Pohl, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 